Hi, I'm Jody Millman, and today on Backstage with the Bardavan, I'll be speaking with Joanna Feltzer, the Artistic Director of New York Stage and Film. For 34 seasons, New York Stage and Film has fostered professional playwrights, directors, actors, and designers at its summer residence at the Vassar College Powerhouse Theater in Poughkeepsie, New York. During late June and July each year, over a dozen brand new productions are presented on its main stage, Powerhouse, and Shivestein Theaters, along with a reading series, filmmaker workshops, and apprenticeship productions. New York Stage and Film has been the incubator for Tony Award and Pulitzer Prize-nominated projects by Duncan Sheik, John Patrick Shanley, Steve Karam, Beth Hanley, and Taylor Mack, as well as Green Day's American Idiot and Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton and Merle Streep, David Strathairn, Greg Kinnear, Josh Radner, Juliana Margulies, John Slattery, John Hamm, and Uzo Aduba have all appeared in these innovative productions. It gives me great pleasure to welcome my friend Joanna Feltzer to our podcast. Joanna, welcome to Backstage oh, with the Bardavan. Joanna. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And welcome to Poughkeepsie. I know. I know. It's my annual pilgrimage. I'm really relieved to finally And this get is the here. 34th season, right? It is. I mean, to be clear, it's not my 34th uh, no, season. No, no. I did not mean to imply that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yes, it is the 34th season of Powerhouse, which feels remarkable. And you've been the artistic director since 2007. That's right. And I had a prior 10-year relationship to the company. So I've been mixed up in all of this one way or another for 20 years now. Since uh, what year? You start in 1998? Exactly. And how did you become involved? I was a child prodigy Yes, yes. And how did you become involved (laughs) with New York Stage and Film? It's funny. I had... um, I'd run a little teeny tiny theater company of my own back in the day that was really focused on new work. I had originally trained at Actors Theater of Louisville that has a really strong focus on creating new American plays through their Humana Festival. So when I moved to the city, that was what, you know, my first baby theater company did. And, um, you know, was sort of the beginning of a long path towards this. At one point, I had been the assistant to a really wonderful commercial producer, and she had sent me up here uh, to sort of scout projects. And I had one of those remarkable powerhouse afternoons where I saw three different you know, plays in three different venues, and I ran into the most extraordinary actors in the bathroom and watched audience members engaged in those really intense conversations on the lawn, and I fell kind of deeply and passionately in love. I went home and created a company, at least on paper, that was a total ripoff of New York Stage and Film. Um, and then, you know, life took its way, and I was doing a couple of other projects. I was working um, in the original company of The Lion King, and as I was sitting in a back office at Disney Theatrical shortly after we had opened Lion King, the phone rang, and it was Leslie Erding, who was one of the founders of New York Stage and Film, saying, um, I don't know if you're familiar with our company, but we're looking for a new managing producer. So... All of that to say, kismet, fate, careful what you wish for, I don't know. That was know. totally random, wasn't it? Well, I mean, yes, random, except it's a small world that we all live and work in. And, you know, she'd been looking for recommendations, and it turned out two of the people she talked to were... One was my former business partner at my first theater company. The other was a director I had worked with. And as she was wandering around saying, oh, we're trying to fill this position. We haven't found quite the right person. They both happened to say, you should call Joanna. So, yeah, it was the beginning of what has been one of the longest relationships of my life. (laughs) And a very happy one. 
And um, you started out as the managing producer. Is that what your title was? And then in 2007, became the artistic Yeah, director. I mean, it's, again, a long and windy road. But yes, I went from being a managing producer to being a producing director in partnership with the three founders. And then I left for five years and worked in San Francisco, during which time I stayed on the board here and still was really involved in helping with the programming, turning up here for my summer vacations every year. <laughs> And then, yes, I came back in 2007 as the company's first artistic director. So New York Stage and Film was, was founded in 85, uh -huh. correct? And that was with uh, Mark Lynn Baker, Leslie Erdang, and Max Mayer. Correct. And what was their goal at the time, and what is your goal today? The interesting thing is I think the goals in the big picture really haven't changed at all. Their goal at the time was to create a better, more robust, more rigorous, richer play development experience for these playwrights. You know, it feels, it felt then, and I think still feels that if you're going cold into New York City, you know, you have your three weeks of rehearsal and your week of tech and a few previews, and then you open and the press in so many ways then is really determinative of the future of the play. And is there a system that can be built that allows the plays and the playwrights more time to be deeply immersed in their own development process. And I think what we've managed to achieve here is that really extraordinary combination of saying, you get to do these pieces at whatever stage in front of an audience so that you really have the ongoing feedback of civilians, of the people for whom you are really legitimately making these stories. And yet it's with the recognition that they are not ready for critical review yet, that everything seen here is still whether it's a workshop, a reading, a main stage production is still in process. And the critics will come later. Later, you know, they'll right. They'll come at, those, at these projects next iteration, and these pieces will be the better for it. And how do you select, the, select your uh, plays? I mean, that's one thing that I... I you always have such an interesting... Um, it's almost like an encyclopedia of different kinds of plays. Last year, I said to Thomas Pearson, who's the executive director, and I, I said to him, it seems like you had history as your, as your theme last year. But that's, I think that was just random, the way that that... Yeah, the themes seem to emerge retrospectively yeah. as opposed to in the actual planning process. You know, what we're always looking for, and when you say, what's the planning process like, I will flippantly say we read and then we argue, but... Um, Liz Carlson, who's our associate artistic director, and I spend months in conversation with artists, with agents, with colleagues in other theaters, um, and artists both that we have relationships with about what they might be working on themselves, but also to hear from them what are the projects that they have come across out in the world that they're passionate about? And that kind of sort of hand-to-hand -hand advocacy has brought us some of the people that we've really fallen deeply in love with over the years. Do you reach out to them or do they reach out to you? Both. Both. I mean, we are constantly reaching out to people and we are constantly receiving a flood of material. And then we'll read somewhere between 200 and 300 plays and musicals. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> we're a little bleary. Um, and from that, a season emerges. And what we're looking for are all sorts of different kinds of stories, obviously. I think we're looking for projects at all different stages of development. So things that would really benefit from the early stage work that we can do in a residency or a reading, people who have a really clear question about one aspect of their piece that might be really well served in a workshop, all the way up to things um, 
that are ready for main stage production, which again, doesn't mean they're necessarily fully done cooking, but it means that the questions that they have can only be answered really fully in three dimensions in the company of designers and a cast that's had a real rehearsal process. Um, so we're looking for that, that sort of breadth of material. And then we're really looking for artists at all different stages of their careers as well. So it's really important to me that people that have a deep history with this place continue to come back and feel that real sense of artistic home, which I think is one of the most elusive things, especially in this country. But it's equally important to me that every year we're forging relationships with artists who are new to us. And it's both for our sake um, as a producing organization and as much it's for the audience so that they're constantly being exposed to both new storytellers and I think different modes of storytelling. And there's something really magical that happens here because part of what we're doing each year is not just building a slate of programming, but we're creating an artistic community that you know, it's a little like Brigadoon. It rises from the mists of the river and then evaporates again eight weeks later. But in the context of that two-month period, um, often in, in a more traditionally structured theater, there's one play happening at a time, or maybe there's one in performance and there's another in rehearsal. But what you don't as a writer or director, a generative audience uh, artist often have is knowing that whatever your day-to-day -day struggle is in that rehearsal room, there's somebody two doors down who's going through exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. And I think it's very rare that you get to be part of that community of peers in real time. And it means that artists are not just focused on their own project, but they're seeing and discussing each other's work as well. And it's one of the things that I really love about that powerhouse experience. And it's very multi-generational here. In addition to the professional artists that are here, we also have a 45-member training company. So these are very early career artists, generally college-aged, and they're engaged in creating their own work in their own rehearsals, their own public performances. But at the same time, they're also embedded in these professional rehearsal rooms, and they are both, um, I think, inspired by the more established artists, but they're also really an immediate reminder to all of us of what we hoped this life would be and what we hoped this world would be. Um, so all of those factors go into the creation of a season. It's really important to me that we have artists who are writing from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, who are working in different genres, in different sort of theatrical languages. And you also had uh, it was a very innovative program. I think it was two years ago, dance. Yeah, which was really <laughs> an outrageous. It was a, a are wonderful. Are you thinking of in your arms? In your arms. Yes, oh yes, yes, our beautiful company of twenty-five dancers. That is a rare treat as an artistic director to get to see that on your stage. And how did that happen? That was a long conversation with Christopher Gatelli, who was the director and choreographer, uh, a producer named Jennifer Manicharian, who had been passionate about that project from its very inception. And that made sense for us. I mean, we're not a dance company, but that was dance that was created in response to um, story ideas that had been generated by a group of 10 playwrights. So each playwright was given the task of creating essentially a situation, a story, an almost little mini novella. Um, and from that, Chris choreographed a dance based on those stories. Carrie Fisher was one of those writers, as I recall. She and was. that was, I think, her last work. Uh, it may have been, yeah. Certainly her not, not her last work as a performer, but perhaps as a, as writer. As a writer, which is interesting. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about um, 
And, and that is that this has really been the birthplace for some well-known projects, starting back with, uh, I would say, True mm-hmm. with Robert Morse and then Sideman. I would go back to the first year to okay. John Patrick Shanley's Savage in Limbo, which is now performed everywhere. And I mean, which is which is totally outrageous. I mean, we have Duncan Cheek mm-hmm. back this year, I think for his seventh time. We've kind of lost count. And of course, as you mentioned, John Patrick Shanley. Wasn't Doubt also one of the project that was incubated here? Yeah, Doubt was um, had its first public reading here. That's incredible. That's it's incredible, and Mary, and uh, Beth Henley's had a lot of projects here yes. as well, yes. and David Malloy. We had uh, projects that went on to, um, well, David Malloy's went on to Broadway. Natasha, uh, Pierre, and the Great Comet of nineteen. Yeah, and that was something actually. In addition to the work that we publicly present, occasionally you'll find that there are artists who are tucked away in the various rooms here working on something that's in its very very early stages. And Dave Malloy was in the Jade Parlor working on what ultimately became Natasha Pierre, but at the moment was sort of some scribbles and some tunes plunked out on, on that piano. <laughs> well, you also had Steady Rain, mm-hmm. and which uh, went on to Broadway with Daniel Craig and Hugh Jackman and Bright Star, yeah. with the, which was uh, Edie Brickell and Steve Martin, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and then, of course, we had the big Tony winner of, of 2016, you want to talk a little bit about that? Do you mean The Humans, which was also here? The Humans, that's right. Well, that was a play, but wasn't there a big musical? There was. You may have heard of it. It was called Hamilton. And tell us a little bit about how that happened. Well, that was the result of a relationship with Tommy Kale, who was the director of Hamilton, who had worked up here previously, and he and I had known each other a bit. Um, he and Lynn and I all graduated from the same college at very different times, let me be clear. Um, And when I had seen the YouTube clip that I think everybody saw of Lynn performing what became the opening number of Hamilton for Barack and Michelle Obama, you know, I started calling Tommy about every six months saying, is it a thing yet? Don't you want to come work on it here? And he'd say, no, it's not a thing yet. And, you know, as I was thinking about the next summer, I'd call him and say, is it a thing yet? Don't you want to come work on it here? Um, And finally he said... It is a thing, and we do want to come work on it, but here are all the rules. <laughs> you know, We're only really ready to work on the first act. Um, and it, it was one of the most magnificent afternoons I've ever spent in a theater. And that was part of the reading series. That yes. wasn't even on one of the stages. It was in the Shiva Theater. Mm-hmm. Right. Bunch of really amazing people standing behind some Which is a little black mics. box. It is a little black little box. Little black box. Yes. It's so little that the number of people who claimed they were there that day <laughs> must have uh, had rather elastic sides. Um, yeah, it, it was. I mean, and I remember I, I called Leslie Erdang, one of the founders, on my way out of the theater that day, and I said... Um, this is actually why you fight to sustain a company, an organization. You know, this is why you raise the money to keep the doors open and the lights on, because someday somebody like that is going to have a story that they want to tell, and you want to be ready for them. Well, you were ready last year when Taylor Mack was here. That was a great adventure, wasn't it? That was it? a great adventure. Yeah. 
and that was 24 hours of the history of American music. Well, we did 12 hours. 12 hours of the 24, <laughs> which was was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It was, yeah, and is now being performed all over the world. Which is incredible. Yeah. And that started here. Yeah, it was a blast. I mean, it's funny because Taylor had done two really rough sort of workshop presentations of it the weekend before, and he had thrown his back out on his way to Poughkeepsie. And so that first weekend, he was working on three-hour chunks, and he was in like, you know, a Henley t-shirt propped up on a bed in the middle of the stage of the Martell. And still, there were moments that were completely magical, and then there were moments where he thought, I don't quite actually understand what's going on here. Uh, And then to see the transformation from that... So the next weekend where, you know, there were 300 people for 12 hours, including soup lines and boxed dinners and so much glitter. So, so much glitter. If you look in the right corners of the Martell Theater, you may still find a little magical Taylor fairy dust around. Well, that's that's an interesting point about about the weeks that the people are here, that the actors are here and the playwrights are here, that they take it and it begins at one spot and often ends up at another. I mean, last year I was at a play and the writers came out and they said, look, we really don't know what we're doing here and we're just kind of going to throw it out to you and we really want to see what your reaction is so that we can move forward because we've been stuck on this really one particular part of our play. Mm-hmm. And, and you always come out at the beginning and say, look, you're in for a ride with these people and just you know sit back and enjoy yourself. And so it really is a process, a working process over that period of time. Oh, very much so. And I think one of the things we found is that people who either don't love that kind of process or whose work is in a place where they don't need that kind of process won't be particularly well served here. Uh, One of the things that I think makes that all possible, actually, is the audience that's here. And their appetite for looking at work at all different stages of development, their ability to engage with unfinished work and to sort of see through some of the muck and the mire and the new script pages, not to necessarily imagine what it could be, um, though that's always fun, but to really see it for what it is in that moment and to be part of a real shared collective of people who are going to help propel it forward is really unlike anything I've ever experienced. But how does that feedback occur? Because I know when I sit in the audience, I'll clap or I'll laugh or I'll cry in response to what's going on on the stage. But how, how does the playwright and how do the actors react to that? How do they take away something tangible from that experience that I'm getting? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think the easy parts are when you can hear somebody laugh or cry or clap. The thing that is equally palpable, perhaps less to the audience members themselves, but to those of us who have spent our lives sitting in the back rows of theaters, um, is you can really feel when an audience as a whole loses interest, loses focus, loses sympathy. There's a wonderful director, Davis McCallum, who runs the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival now, and we were working on a project together, and he said... Oh, you mean that moment where the audience picked up their goodwill and left the building with it? And he didn't mean that they were literally walking out, but you can kind of feel where they really start to lean back. And that is as or more informative as the moments that they're really with you. But somewhere in the combination, in the collection of all of that information, it points very clearly to the work that needs to be done. So that's one really clear way that the audience, perhaps subconsciously, 
gives feedback to us. Um, and then the other thing is, this is a really intimate community that we're part of, and people feel very comfortable approaching us, whether it's on the patio of the powerhouse, whether it's when you're getting coffee in the morning, when it's dropping my kid off at camp, <laughs> to really share what their experiences of it have been. And sometimes they love it, and sometimes they don't. I think the most useful part is really understanding um, if they loved it, why? And not in a self-congratulatory way, but because mm -hmm. it'll help us stay on the true path. And if they didn't like it, also why? Or sort of where, where did they lose interest? Where did they struggle? Where were they confused? You know, and when we're working um, on the play workshops and on the main stages, we get to do a couple of formal audience talkbacks for each one of those streams of programming. Um, and I'm always incredibly impressed at the depth with which our audience wants to engage in big questions about the play. I remember we were working on a beautiful play of Stephen Belber's called The Power of Duff that Greg Kinnear was starring in and Jennifer right. Westfelt was starring in. And, you know, I said to the whole cast, I fully expect you all to be out on stage to do this talk back. And, you know, I think they thought they were going to get questions about what was it to make Little Miss Sunshine or, you know, legitimate but sort of questions driven more by their experiences out of the building than in the building. And all that audience wanted to do was talk about the big questions that the play had raised, which is what is it to either have or lose faith mm -hmm. at this moment in our culture? And I've never been more proud of our audience <laughs> than I was that night where it's like, great, let's actually dig into these big, juicy, incomprehensible thematic things together? Is there any better reason mm. to come into a room together to be told a story than to be left at the end with big questions that we can address collectively? But that's what people come for. Exactly. You know, they want to be entertained, but they also want to have their, you know, their mind tickled a little bit. Yep. And this well. audience is more game for that kind of work than any other. Now, you have subscriptions and you have single tickets, correct? We do. And um, the the subscription to opened up in May. Uh-huh. And the single, single tickets, I'm assuming, are still available for the yep. current season. You want to talk a little bit about the current season? Sure, I'd love to. What would you like to know? Well, tell us a little bit about um, you. As, as it's set up, we have the Powerhouse Theater, mm -hmm. which holds how many people? About 145. And then we have the Shiva Shiva. Which is how many? Uh, 125-ish. And the Martell? 325. Okay, so the Martell is usually where you have the big productions, where you have the musicals. Oddly, the Martell is where we've been workshopping our musicals. Our main stage productions happen in the powerhouse. It was the first theater that we had here, and it's such a beautiful space. Um, I mean, it's a tricky space because it's really just a big black box, but I think it can be transformed in the most amazing ways. And I've watched so many years of designers and directors and playwrights transform that space based on nothing other than their imaginations. I was there once for a production starring Christine Lati. I don't remember the name of it, but it was a theater in the round. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've been oh, there. Oh, yeah, with we've all made that theater into every possible configuration. And you've had you ships on it when you did the Danish Widow. Yep. I mean, you've had incredible and soccer fields. Soccer fields, and then the Greg Kinnear. Project yeah. had sliding doors. Yeah. I mean, it's just Tons incredible. Of projections on that one. Really too. incredible. Yeah. But the main, but the, that's the main stage. So the now, main the, stage. now over at Martell, though, is that's that's where you have the the big readings, the big musical workshops. Right. Yeah, and it's just such a wonderful space. That space opened up, I guess, 
12 or so years, years ago. ago. Yeah. And it really gave us the ability to be in service of these musicals in development in a way that we hadn't been able to before, which was fantastic. Because I think um, a playwright alone in a room can get a pretty far distance with a musical because it's always or almost always a team of writers, plus a director, or sometimes plus a choreographer, I find that they really do need um, an organization, an institution to bring them together and create a real rigorous work experience for them. So I'm really happy that we've been able to do that. Well, with the, as I recall, with most of the, uh, the musical productions, you'll have you know five, six, seven, maybe sometimes 10 or 15 actors and singers on stage. Mm -hmm. So generally, there's not a lot of staging that yeah. goes along with it. There have been a couple where you've, you've done some some staging and dancing, not mm -hmm. including in your arms. Right. But like you, last summer with Still Yagi, we had that wonderful choreographer who came from <laughs> Russia and staged several numbers. Again, not so much for the entertainment of the audience, but to help inform story. Mm -hmm. And what type of, what do you have going on there this summer? In the Martell? Yeah. Well, let me tell you. Okay. Um, we actually... To, the last few years, we've done three musical workshops. For some reason, this summer, we're cramming in more. There's singing well, That's a good happening. thing. I love the musicals there. <laughs> well, so you're really going to want to be around for the last weekend of the season when we have musical projects in every theater on this campus. Wow. Um, but going back I do have a subscription, time, by the way. I will be there. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the Martell this year, we're starting with Alice by Heart, which is Duncan Sheik and Stephen Sater's adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. It's set in London during the Blitz, and it's about what happens to a group of sort of young teenagers when their world is quite literally falling apart around them, and they retreat for comfort uh, into the pages of the novel that's really beloved. And then we're following that with Jason Robert Brown's uh, musical, The Connector. I'm really thrilled. Jason has never been with us before, and he's done the music and lyrics for this. It's directed by Jonathan Mark Sherman, who has a long relationship to the company, and directed by Daisy Prince. And that's a really fun contemporary piece about um, a young, brash journalist who stumbles into a magazine, perhaps much like The New Yorker, has a string of extraordinary successes, and then perhaps has found out to be not everything we think or wish he were. Mm -hmm. um, the third piece in the Martell this summer is a musical called Cowboy Bob. Again, it's by a team that are entirely new to us, Molly Beach Murphy, Gina Phillips, and Annie Tipp. Um, and it's a great story based on a true story uh, about a woman who dressed up as a man, as Cowboy Bob, and robbed banks in Texas for a decade before being discovered. Um, and it's just kind of a fantastic tale of, oh, transformation, about escaping your circumstances, about the people around her who were both um, literally threatened by what she was doing, but then also really inspired, perhaps, to take on transformations of their own. And then the fourth musical workshop is Little Orphan Danny, which is a piece we've been nurturing along for a little while from, again, tucking them away in the jade parlor with a stack of index cards and saying, figure out the story you want to tell. Last summer, we were able to do a week-long reading of it in the Shiva. This is a wonderful piece by a comedian and musician named Dan Finnerty, who has a band called the Dan Band that you might have seen in, you know, like the Wedding Crashers. Oh, yes, I, I do know who he is. Yes, yes, you do. He's a pretty wild guy. He's a totally wild guy. It turns out that the story he wants to tell is both 
wild and profanity-laced and ultimately really tender about finding his birth mother. And then how do you reconcile his deep love for the mother who raised him with his newfound relationship with the woman who literally brought him into the world? And then on the main stage, you've got two exciting uh, programs. You've got Radio Island yeah. and The Waves. And yeah. you can tell us a little bit about those. So Radio Island has just arrived in town today to start their rehearsals here. They've done the last two weeks of rehearsal in New York City. Um, and this, to me, is a little bit like the way I felt reading Sarah DeLapp's play The Wolves for the first time. Liza Birkenmeyer is a really exciting early career playwright. Um, this will be her first professional production. And that's both so exciting for her, but also such a privilege for us to get to do that with her and for her. We've paired her with Jackie Bradley, who is the director of last summer's Good Men Wanted on our main stage, which I found to be wildly theatrical, hugely ambitious in its vision. And this is a play that's about... Um, well, it's about a woman who is a hostage negotiator. And what you get to watch her do in the course of the play is both negotiate for the release of an oil tanker that has been boarded by Somali pirates, and then simultaneously, and perhaps in a more challenging way, how to negotiate the relationship between her mother and her estranged father. So sort of all of those different ways that one can be held hostage, either literally or emotionally. It's very spooky. It certainly has elements of being a ghost story, elements that really feel like a thriller, um, and then this really deep emotional resonance as well. So I'm really excited for that. It's a beautiful cast also. And then The Waves is a piece that actually began 30 years ago. It's a slightly unusual task for us to take on um, the re-examination of a piece. And it was done originally by Lisa Peterson, who is its director as well as its book writer, and a wonderful composer who was then very young named David Bucknam. Um, David died tragically too young and without really fully finishing this piece. It had a small production in New York again 30 years ago. But as Lisa has grown up, um, and I think has a different relationship to the story, which is so much about a group of friends who track their own maturation together and against each other, and I think has a really different sense of how that story can be shaped now. So Adam Guan, who's a fantastic young composer, who was one of David's last students at NYU. David, in addition to being a composer himself, was uh, taught musical theater at NYU. So Adam has come in to both um, make revisions to David's original score, but also to write some new material as they re-examine the story. And I see that Raul Esparza is also attached to the project. He is, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, very. Will he be appearing in it, or has he just been the creative director to it? We don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's a fantastic there you go. cast that we're putting together, and I think you're going to be delighted by all six of them. And then we have a few other workshops that are going on. Oh, yeah, because that's not enough to keep us all entertained exactly. for the next Exactly. I mean, do you sleep? When you, when you get here in June until the end of uh, till the end of July, do you sleep at all? No, we like to think of it as one long week that basically <laughs> begins in June and ends in August. We find that it keeps us <laughs> pointed in the right direction. Yeah, so we're doing two uh, play workshops in the Shiva. One is a piece called India Pale Ale, which is about... Um, 
a Southeast Asian community in Wisconsin in the present day. Wonderful writer named Jacqueline Backhouse, who is being reunited on this with her director, Will Davis. Together, they did a piece called Men in Boats that was really successful in New York. And again, just such a great scale of theatrical imagination coming from this team. And Our Country? Our Country is a piece that I actually saw in workshop at the public theater this winter during their Under the Radar Festival, and I was really intrigued. Um, Annie Saunders and Becca Wolf have created a piece that's based in part on Annie's relationship with her brother and in part on Antigone, and it's set in the contemporary marijuana industry in Northern California, Woo-hoo. which is really... Um, <laughs> Sounds like a high time. <laughs> oh, Jody, really? Um, but I think it's it's a new iteration of what the Wild West really is. Mm-hmm. But as much as anything, it's a setting for um, a series of conversations that Annie had with her brother, who was very involved in that industry. And what happens when somebody who you love, who you have grown up with, who is like you and of you, is perhaps capable of violence of which you can't conceive? Hmm. What do you do then? Well, it sounds like a great season. Thank you. And then, of course, in addition, there's nine readings and a bunch of other residencies happening. And Also, the apprentices, they have their own programs as well. They absolutely do. They do sound painting, which is a beautiful um, sort of choreographed movement style of storytelling that they do in the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center. Um, They also perform for the public a series of classic plays this year. They're doing Measure for Measure and As You Like It out at the Vassar Barnes Ecological Center. Oh, lovely. Yeah, if you haven't been out there on a summer evening to watch the sun drop behind the barns where you're being told a great story by a wonderful young company, I would highly recommend it. Also, all of their programming is free to the public, as are our readings. Well, you know, uh, there are so many ways that people can become involved with New York Stage and Film. And of course, we've talked about coming to the readings and coming to the plays, but they can also donate. Oh, God, yes, they can. Okay. (laughs) They can attend the gala, which is usually in December in New York Uh City. And last year you honored Tina Fey and... And Don Katz, who's the founder of Audible. So which is also an exciting and wonderful event and raises money for a wonderful organization. Uh, Kids who are in college can participate in the apprenticeship program. In the training program, yeah. And the cutoff age for that is 17. They have to be at least 17 as the program begins. But it's a great class with a great company with really extraordinary faculty and performing opportunities, which I think are really important for early career artists. And if you're an early career artist, you can also apply for a grant or fellowship or residency here in Poughkeepsie, correct? And you can attend workshops if you're interested, correct? All of those things are true. And Barnard, you've got the the We have an ongoing reading series that happens at Barnard College in the city throughout the year so that we're able to serve artists and meet some of their needs, at least outside the confines of June and July. We also have a week-long filmmakers workshop that happens here uh, in July in the middle of all of this theatrical work as well. And that's designed to serve, again, early career screenwriters and people who are working on TV pilots as well. So if people are interested, where where can they get this information, Joanna? They can go to two different places. They can go to www.newyorkstageandfilm.org or they can go to powerhouse.vassar.edu. Well, Joanna, this has been wonderful. Have you had fun? Of course I have. I love talking about this, and I love talking about it with you. Well, this is fun. Well, thank you for coming. My and pleasure. I, I can't wait to see the productions. I'm really looking forward to oh, it. Thank you so much. We're excited to share the work with you. Okay.
thanks again to Joanna Feltzer and New York Stage and Film for hosting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Backstage with the Bardavon Productions and is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. Thanks again for listening and follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. And join us on June 30th when Movies Under the Walkway presents Wonder Woman at the Upper Landing Park in Poughkeepsie. Visit us on Facebook at Movies Under the Walkway.